Well, hey, everybody. If you're out in the hallway, you can come back in. We're going to get started this morning. It's good to see all of y'all here. Uh, hope y'all had a Merry Christmas. I'm glad to be back with y'all. Last Sunday, I was, uh, I was out with uh, recovering from the flu, and it was rough. And uh, I almost died, so I'm glad, glad I'm still alive. And uh, there we go. I've still got a little bit of a lingering cough, so I hope not to cough in the microphone too many times this morning, and we'll, we'll see, see how it goes. But I'm not contagious, so that's, that's, good. that's good news. Well, uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue the series that we started in uh, December, and even though uh, Christmas has now come and gone, uh, we're still uh, doing this, wrapping up the series today that we've called Jesus Our Hope. And uh, the way that we're using the word hope here is in the biblical sense. In the Bible, in the Bible hope is a kind of a rich the, uh, 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 word that uh, is different than our English word hope. And that when we use hope in our in, you know today, we really just mean something like wishful thinking, right? Like something we desire to happen but have no certainty whether it happened or not. But in the Bible, especially the Greek word for hope, it has a completely different uh, meaning to it. It really has an era of certainty. In fact, here, just this is a helpful definition of been using throughout this series. The hope is life-shaping certainty about things unseen. Life-shaping certainty about things unseen. And hope in the Bible is usually grounded in the person or the promises of God. And since God does not change, and since God does not lie, he does not lie. If he says it's going to happen, then you can take it to the bank, if you will. Like, you can count on it. And even though you might not have it fully yet, you can shape your life around what God has said. Then you have this incredible life-shaping certainty, this, this hope. And so we've said throughout the series that Jesus is our hope. And we've been uh, kind of laying out how he is our hope. And the way we've been fleshing that out is by looking at the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Now, uh, the genealogies are not usually real fascinating reading. And so we spent, this will be our third Sunday in the genealogy uh, found in the beginning of Matthew. And, and yet I think what we found is that it's quite interesting when you actually get into it. Because Matthew has two goals in writing, the, uh, starting uh, his account of Jesus' life this way, starting off with the genealogy. His first goal is this. He knew that his, uh, you know, original audience, a strong Jewish audience, that they knew that the Messiah had to be a descendant of Abraham and he had to be a descendant of David. And so right from the get-go, uh, uh, Matthew is trying to sh- uh, show his audience, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And one way you can know that is because he is a descendant of Abraham and he is a descendant of David. But then he starts fleshing out and he starts getting into all the different people in, the, in uh, Jesus's family tree. And he adds a little color commentary on some of those characters. He kind of taps the brakes on a few of them. And it's interesting to note which ones he taps the brakes on because they are the ones that are like the, the most outrageous sinners if you will, in Jesus's family tree. There, some of them are quite creepy. Some of them are more of like the R-rated characters. And you think, Matthew, like, why in the world are you drawing more attention to those guys? And uh, that we've seen so far in the series, that, that reveals the second goal that Matthew had in starting the, the, his account of Jesus' life with the genealogy. Because this goal is that not only does he want his readers to know that Jesus is the Messiah, but he also wants them to know who the Messiah has come for and what he has come to do. And by drawing attention to some of these more colorful characters in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew is saying, look, Jesus has come through 
and four people who do not deserve to have Jesus come to. That, that these people show that God does not come to us based on what we have done, but that Jesus has come to offer us peace with God based on what he has done for us. And even through the people in Jesus' own geneal- genealogy, who the, that they don't deserve to be used by God in this way, but that God would use them this way, not based on what they have done for God, but what God would eventually do for them in the coming of the Messiah. And Matthew wants his readers to get that right from the get-go, to understand, yes, Jesus is Messiah, but who he is and who he has come for and why he has come to get that as well. And so he draws attention to some of these more colorful characters and its genealogy. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of the characters that's a little bit, he's, he's actually a mix of those two goals. Because this one that we're going to look at is King David. And King David is the, the person in the genealogy and person in the Bible that's most closely connected to Christ. That oftentimes Jesus is referred to as the, as the son of David. That even uh, in the genealogy in Matthew, that's how he introduces Jesus in the very first Matthew one one as the uh, you know, descendant of Abraham, son of David. And so, like this is really a big deal that Jesus would come from the line of David, and yet. David, this great historical figure, this great, like the best king of all of Israel, one of the, one of the, thought of as one of the, the greatest per, people who have ever lived in the nation of Israel, the, the, the man that's referred to as the man after God's own heart, the guy that took down Goliath, the guy who wrote many of the Psalms, like this incredible guy. What Matthew does, as we'll see in a second, is that when he gets to David and the genealogy, he doesn't flesh out any of the good things that David had done. He actually draws out one of the most shameful things of David's whole life. And you think, man, Matthew, like, why are you doing that? Like, wouldn't, your readers, wouldn't you want your readers to think, man, this is amazing that Jesus has come from David? Not, hey, remember David? This guy that y'all think is amazing, but really was a great, me- like a huge mess up. <laughs> Has this huge uh, immorality problem, a huge sin. Why draw that up? And in the, what we've been saying throughout the series is that the reason Matthew does that is because that's a, a part of the story, but even more, it illustrates the very point of the story. It's why Jesus came. It's who Jesus came for. That Jesus has come not based on what we have done for him. Not on the things that we do or don't do or the promises that we make or the things that we say we'll never do again or if all of that stuff. But Jesus has come based on what he is going to offer us, a relation with God based on what he has done for us. Not on what we do. And so that's what he begins to flesh out. So let me read this for us, starting in Matthew 1. And we'll see kind of what I'm talking about here. So Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then uh, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And we talked about that. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, which we talked about her. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon. 
by the wife of Uriah. Now, let me stop right there. Now, if you stick with the pattern, right? It's in Solomon, the, the son of David, and then moving on. And Solomon, the father of... But he stops and he says, Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now, for those of you who are familiar with that story, you know, like this is like Matthew dragging up the most shameful part of David's entire life. Like that, we'll get into it in a second. But you think, again, David, like why not? And Solomon's father, you know, who was the son of David, the psalmist, the, the giant killer, the man after God's heart. Why not the good stuff? Why not bring that up? Why not really try to build Jesus up in the eyes of these Jewish audience that he's writing to that think so highly of David? Why bring, why drag up the sin of David's past and tie that to Jesus? Why? Again, because it's the point of the story. It's who Jesus came for. It's why Jesus came. That Jesus did not come based on what we've done for him, but on what he would do for us. The reason we can have a relation with God is not what we do and how we act and what good that we do that we don't or the bad that we don't do. But it's based on what Jesus has done for us. This is incredible news. And so that's why Matthew draws this up. Now, let's talk about David, right? If you want to follow along with me, you can turn your Bibles to Second Samuel uh, chapter 7. We're going to get to that in a minute. As you turn there, uh, let me uh, just set up some context for you. I'm going to go back a little a little ways, but... Um, it's interesting to note for anyone here that's uh, still kind of checking out Christianity and still trying to see if this is, you know, if you can buy into this stuff and all that. One thing to note is that the Bible is, is not one book. For those, you probably know this, but it's actually a collection of many ancient manuscripts that were written over a course of thousands of like thousands of years. And that this story that we're going to look look at today in the story of David was about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And one of the things that's just to factor in as you're trying to make some decisions about Christianity is to note that this story and the story of Jesus, like we'll see, they tie together perfectly, which is really amazing that a story that was written a thousand years apart would read like one story. And so that's just just think about that as we start uh, diving into David's story here this morning. But, okay, so David, uh, back, I'm going to back up a little bit. So in 1 Samuel, you got the story where we're introduced to David. And the way that that happens, that there's this prophet named Samuel. And God comes to the prophet Samuel and says, I want you to appoint a new king. At that point in time, Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. But Saul had been moving away from God. So God says, I'm gonna, I want you, Samuel, to appoint a new king. And so he says, go to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is a city, and we most know it as the city where Jesus was born. We just kind of celebrated all of that, right? But the first time Bethlehem's mentioned in the Bible is not when Jesus was born there. It's a thousand years before. That's where David lived. And so Samuel goes to, uh, to Bethlehem, and he finds this family. Uh, the father's name is Jesse, and he has eight sons. And Samuel arranges a way to get together with Jesse and his sons because God's kind of directed him to them and says, one of Samuel's sons is going to be the the second king of Israel. And so uh, Samuel comes before these sons and he starts looking at them. And again, 1 Samuel 16, you you can read the story for yourself, but 
basically uh, Samuel looks at the first son of Jesse and says, hey, this guy looks like a king. He, he's, he's big and strong and handsome. I bet you this is a king. And God kind of nudges Samuel and says, no, that's, that's not the one. And so Samuel moves to the second son and says, okay, this, this son, I guess whatever you see, this son's got a lot of second bornness, a lot of, a lot of spunk to him. Maybe he's the king. And sure enough, no, no not the king. So uh, uh, God just nudges Samuel, keep looking. It's the third son. Like maybe he's learned lessons from the first son, first son, second son. Maybe this guy is the one, but no, not the one. And then kind of on down the line, fourth son, fifth son, sixth son, seventh son, still not the king. He's not the one that God wants. And so there's no more sons at present. And so Samuel kind of looks to Jesse and says, eh, this might be kind of a weird question, but do you have any more sons? And Samuel, uh, and Jesse says, well, I've got one more son. Uh, he's the youngest and he's off taking care of the sheep. So I'll wait, bring, bring him before me. And so, uh, and a little while up runs little, little David, kind of covered with sheep, sheep hair or whatever. And he comes up and God nudges Samuel and says, like, that's your king. That's the one. And so Samuel anoints little David with oil and says, hey, you're going to be the future, future king of Israel. And then he leaves. And like David just kind of is a kid. And time goes by and through some really dramatic events, some really wild events, and like you can read it, and I encourage you to read it. In fact, you know, every, every week I could just go ahead and say, if you're in church, let me encourage you to read your Bible during the week. That's a, that's a good thing, but that's a great story to read perhaps this week, but you find through some dramatic events, uh, David ends up becoming the second king of Israel. And then time kind of goes by, and as David's the king, gets this He's living in this incredible palace, this incredible home, and he's very comfortable. He feels really uh, blessed to be in this home. And one day he's looking out the window of the palace, and he sees this uh, elaborate t- uh, tent called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it's where the, base, the presence of God was. And that and they, Israelites knew that God was bigger than a tent, but like that was their focal point of worship. That's where they would gather to worship God in this tent, the tabernacle, where it kind of housed the glory of God. And David looks out his palace window, and he says, and if I'm this comfortable and this, this incredible, living in this incredible place, there's no way that I should let God continue to camp out in a tent. I'm going to build God a beautiful a house. I'm going to build God a temple. And so he begins putting plans together and raising money to do so. And then God sends David another prophet. And this is the prophet Nathan. And this is where we're going to pick up reading. So if you're in Second Samuel 7, or I've got it up here as well. Uh, God, through the prophet Nathan, says these things to David. Starting in verse, uh, verse 8, it says, uh, this is God. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture uh, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you, for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Okay, let me stop right here and just, just point out something that's, that's worth mentioning. How many of y'all, before you were even here this Sunday, had heard of the name of, of David, King David? That's pretty much all of us, as far as I can tell. Isn't that wild? Like this prophecy, like what God says through Nathan to David, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus is born, you know, 3,000 years from now, 
God says, hey, I'm going to make your name great, David. It's going to be remembered as one of the great names of all of the earth. And yet here we are, 3,000 years, we all know who he is. And not just us, not just in, in, in like Texas, but throughout the world, all different languages, all different cultures, they all know who King David is. 3,000, so like, that, that, is that a coincidence? I don't, I don't, I don't think so, but it's just worth noting. Like, that's, that's an amazing prophecy. Now, let me jump down to verse 11. It says this. Um, let me see. Actually, where do I want to go? Yeah, verse 11. It says, from the time that I appointed formerly, okay, from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offsprings after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Let me stop there again. So what God's saying through Nathan to David is this. He says, hey, I know you want to build me a house. You want to build this temple for me, but I'm not going to let you do that. But instead, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you this great name, meaning like I'm going to, I'm going to establish your home, your line, your, your, your throne, your people, your lineage. They're going to be great for generations and generations and generations to come. And when you die, your son is going to rule. And he is the one who's actually going to build me a house, which we know happened. Solomon built the temple for, for God. And so then he goes on. And he says something that's really interesting. It's helpful to know kind of uh, on how God ends up relating to David and that and David's uh, followers based on and being this great God of, of mercy and yet at the same time um, uh, showing punishment to David when he messes up and to the people in David's line. He says, God says this in verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. So you're following along in this. Basically what what God is saying is, Hey, if you, you wander away from me or your, your sons wander away from me, like I'm, a, I'm a good father, and I'm not going to just turn a blind eye to their sin. I'm going to punish them for it. And yet, at the same time, never will I withdraw my promise from you. That this promise I'm making to establish your home, to establish your line, your throne forever and ever, that will always remain, no matter how, you, how bad you mess up. And in doing this, God is making an unconditional promise to David. He's saying, no matter what you do, here's what I'm going to do. No matter what, I'm going to establish your line. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to establish your throne. There will always be someone reigning from you. This is an incredible promise that God makes to David. Now, four chapters later, 2 Samuel chapter 11, what you have is David severely testing God's promise. 
Because four chapters later, in 2 Samuel 11, is a story that most of us are familiar with. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a story that Matthew is alluding to in the genealogy of Jesus. It's the story that, I'm just going to tell it real quick for sake of time, but it's where uh, David, in the time where kings go off to war, the Bible says, David stays back. And he's staying back, he's being comfortable, he's not being where he, he's not where he ought to be. Instead, he, one day he's up on the roof, walking around his palace, and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. And he calls one of his servants over and says, hey, who's this girl? And the the servant says, well, that's Bathsheba, the the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was one of uh, David's generals. He says, well, where's where's Uriah? Uriah is off at war. And so David says, well, could you bring her to me? And so Bathsheba is brought to David. And David and Bathsheba do a little bit more than talk. And they, uh, and a couple weeks later, Bathsheba sends a note to, uh, a message to David that says, I, I'm pregnant, uh, by you. And so now David's got a mess on his hands. He's, he's, uh, you know, got, knocked up this, this girl. It's not his wife, wife of a, of another guy. And so he sends a note to Uriah and gets Uriah brought off of the battlefield and brought to the palace. And uh, David kind of concocts his plan of like, I'm going to talk to Uriah and I'm going to uh, see how the battle's going and then I'm going to send him home. And so he tells Uriah, he says, hey, you know, why don't you, I'm going to send you back to the battlefield tomorrow. For now, why don't you go home and uh, spend some time with your wife? And yet Uriah doesn't. He goes and he sleeps in the, by the palace door. And uh, the next day, David hears that Uriah did not go home. And so he brings Uriah back and says, Uriah, like, why didn't you go home? And he says, man, like, all my men are sweating and bleeding and dying on the battlefield. How could I go home and enjoy the comforts of home when my men are out on the battlefield? I, I couldn't do it. And so David says, okay, well, you need to stay another night, and then I'll send you home the next day. And that night, David has Uriah come back to the palace, and David gets him completely drunk. And then thinking that maybe when he's completely drunk, his guard will be down. He won't be a man of integrity and he'll end up going home and sleeping with his wife and he can kind of cover up all this stuff that David has done. And yet Uriah that same, that night doesn't go home again. So David finds out that Uriah had not gone home. And so uh, David writes a note to Joab, who's the, who's the commander of the army and is in charge of Uriah. And in the note, he tells Joab, hey, when, when Uriah is on the battlefield, what I want you to do is put him at the very front, front lines where the fighting's the heaviest. And in the middle of the, in the, middle of the battle, I want you to pull back all the other men and just let Uriah and his men uh, basically let him die. Then he uh, seals up this note and he gives it to Uriah to deliver to Joab. So Uriah is delivering his own like personal death sentence to Joab without Uriah has no idea. Now at this point in time, like this is wild, right? Like this is a horrible story. This is the story that Matthew is digging up when he says Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Like of all the stories to drag up, like why drag up this story? Like this, this is incredibly shameful. You would think in the story, this is where God would say, okay, um, David, you know that promise I made to you? Um, not so much. I'm going to make Uriah king because Uriah is the good guy. Uriah is acting righteously. Uriah is the one that's like deserves to be put in that kind of prominent position. But instead, God stays true to his promise. Even though David is sinning horribly, 
Uriah delivers the note to Joab. Joab follows the king's orders. The next day, he pulls back the men. Uriah and, many, and it seems like a few of his men, for sure, end up dying. Word gets back to uh, David, to Bathsheba, that Uriah's dead. Bathsheba uh, mourns the loss of her husband, and then David brings Bathsheba to be his wife. And in, in David's eyes, everything's going to be cool now. I mean, it took, him, took some doing. Yeah. Someone had to die, but now they, they people won't question when Bathsheba has his, his child. And yet at the end of chapter 11, 2 Samuel, we get this, this one verse right here. It's a little bit of an understatement, I think, but it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And yet, even when uh, David has sinned in this severely, what we see is God not break his promise with David. Instead, the very next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, what you have is Nathan the prophet. God sends Nathan again to David. And uh, Nathan, uh, God has told Nathan what David has done. uh, Nathan outs uh, David. David uh, hears, uh, you know, is confronted by his sin and he actually responds well. He, he, he runs off to the altar. He, he, he uh, confesses his sins. He doesn't refer to it as a mistake or downplay it. He, he, he owns it and says it's against God that he's sinned. I mean, you can read his confession in Psalm 51. It's a great, great passage. But he, an amazing, God forgives David. And yet, what he promised David is true that he, he holds David to a sin. He does as a father. God as a father doesn't look the other way and just sweep all this under the rug. He, he severely punishes David for what he has done. And like things get really bad for David. And it's the son that Bathsheba is pregnant with dies and everybody, the, the affair goes public and like just horrible stuff happens to David's family. His, his, his oldest son and his, and his favorite son, they start warring together. His, his favorite son kills his oldest son. His, his general Joab ends up killing his, killing his favorite son. The, for a while, the kingdom is divided. I mean, it's just horrible, horrible, horrible stuff that starts taking place. And, and, Dave, and all of it, the critical part is when David has the affair with Bathsheba. And that's what Matthew drags up in the genealogy of Jesus. And you think again, like, why? Why do that? Let me tell you. Because Matthew was an ex-tax collector. Matthew, as a tax collector, he knew what it was like to be a, a sinner and to be known by his sin and to know that if the way that you are actually accepted by God is based on what you do or don't do, then, you have, then Matthew knew he had no hope of ever being accepted by God. And yet, the incredible story that Matthew is about to write, the story of Jesus' life and his death and his teachings and all that, this is the greatest story of all time, and Matthew knew it. 
And Matthew knew the hope of this story, the life-shaping certainty that comes from Jesus that says that God accepts us not based on what we have done, but what, on, what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so when, G, when, when Matthew begins writing the genealogy of Jesus and writing these people, he gets to David, he draws this up because this is the incredible, incredible illustration of the good news that God draws nearer to those who are far from him. That God uses and he comes to sinners because God doesn't come based on what we do for him, but what Jesus would do for us. And then, so he draws up David's sin. And he says, hey, this guy is as messed up as me and as you and as all of us. And yet look, grace, mercy, forgiveness of God because of Jesus how could he not draw this up? How could he not draw attention to this story? It's a perfect illustration of, who Jesus, of why Jesus came and who Jesus had come for. And it's an incredible picture, incredible hope of the fact that God keeps his promises. Because God kept his promise to David 990 years later. There was a guy named Joseph. Married to a girl named Mary. And they approached the town of Bethlehem, which was known as, at that point in time, the city of David. And Joseph was a descendant of King David. And there they gave birth to a son, and that son was the Son of God, Jesus our Lord, the Messiah, the King of Kings. The one who's, who would sit on the throne forever and ever. Who came from the line of David, just as God had promised. Even though David did not do anything to deserve God keeping that promise. But since God had made an unconditional promise to David, he followed through. And Matthew knew that in the story that he's about to tell, it would end with Jesus stating another promise, another amazing, unconditional promise. But this promise wouldn't just be to the line of David, but this promise would be for all people everywhere, all of us, all of our friends, all of our neighbors, everyone in the whole world. And this promise would be that he would... Jesus would die for the sins of the world that we could be made right with God. Not based on what we do or what we don't do or the promises that we make or all of that stuff, but based on what God has done for us in Christ. And that this promise would also be an unconditional promise. That it would not be based on what one party does and the other party does but it would be a a promise based on just what one party says they would do. And to show that this is an unconditional promise, only one party would actually bleed. Only one party would would, uh, shed their blood. And that's Jesus Christ. That Christ would come and make a way for us to be right with God, to have peace with God, through the shedding of his blood on the cross, that our sins could be forgiven. Passage that many of us might have read at our homes 
on Christmas Day. Um, it's so uh, it's so p- powerful. It's it's also very common. I want you to just try to hear it through the ears of what we've just all talked about here. But when the angel came to the shepherds, this is what it's what he said. He said. Oh, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Again, all the people. That includes us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. The city of David. Now, pause there. Like, that's amazing, right? Like, again, this is God fulfilling the promise. Like, 3,000 years later, 1,000 years later in this case, like, you still know David's name. Even though... He did sin so horribly. Even though he didn't deserve it, God stayed true to his promise. He says, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ or the Messiah, the Lord. And so skipping down to 13, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the promise of what we have in Christ. And it's a promise to us all, and it's an unconditional promise. It's incredibly good news. Here's the promise. Here's the thing. This is the reason we can have peace with God. It's because Jesus has come to remove the obstacle to our peace with God. And guys, our obstacle to peace with God is sin. And what we do and what religion teaches us to do and kind of our default way of functioning is to think about the way that the way we handle our sin is what we try to negotiate our sin with God. We say, man, God, like I just I did this, but like it was back a long time ago or I was only 22 or if you had my family or, you know, my mom or my friend did this or I won't ever do this again. I promise. Or I did just did it once or, I, you know, I, I won't or if I do. But I know I did that. But if I do this and I've been doing this and if I keep doing this, then maybe and like, guys, we will never have peace with God if we try to negotiate our sin. Our, our sin is the obstacle to peace with God. And the good news of Christmas, the good news of Jesus, our hope is that Jesus has come to remove the obstacle to our peace with God, to remove our sin. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That when he died for us, he was dying in our place for the sins that we committed, they rested upon him instead. And the punishment that they deserved rested upon him instead. And that when he rose again three days later, it showed that his death was sufficient payment for our sins. And the promise that God has made us unconditionally is that if you come to, if you come to God based on what Jesus has done for you, then you will forever be accepted. And that's incredible news, isn't it? incredible news. This morning we're going to end our time by taking communion. And so if the servers can come forward and begin to pass out the elements and as you receive them, if you just hold on to it and we're going to take it all together. But as you uh, wait to to receive these, I just want to remind us of what Jesus said on a night that he was going to be betrayed the night that he knew he was going to be handed over to be eventually crucified 
and to die on the cross for our sins. He took the time to have a meal with his close friends. And uh, in that, during that meal, at one point in time, he took some uh, bread and he held it up and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they broke that bread and they ate it and they remembered how, and we do that now to remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And in that statement, this new covenant, this was the new promise. This is what I've been talking about. That this blood was the initiation of a new unconditional promise for all people. That his blood would be shed, that we could be all made right with God through Christ. Not based on what we do or what we don't do, but based on what Jesus has done for us. And so, if you will, take the bread. Let's remember Jesus' body broken for us. Take and eat. The cup. The hope of the of our God, the promise keeper, who always keeps his promises to us no matter what. Unconditionally and have acceptance because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's take and drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for keeping your promises. Lord, that you would keep your promise to David despite his horrendous sin. That gives us hope that you keep your promise to us. Lord, that when something in our hearts tries to deceive us and tell us that that there's no way that we can be right with God because of our, our mistakes, because of our sin, because of our bad choices, God, I pray that you would remind us of David and how you kept his promise, how you kept your promise to him, and Lord, that we could have hope, life-shaping certainty that you're keeping your promise to us as well. Lord, that it's not based on what we do or what we don't do, that we can, uh, but Lord, it's completely based on what you have done for us. But that that's our hope. That's how we know that we can be right with you. God, I pray for anyone in this room who's yet to believe that. I pray that they would believe it. They would just quit uh, trying to negotiate their sin away. Lord, they would believe that their sin has been paid for once and for all by Christ, and it's only through Him. And God, I pray for the rest of us that all of us that just seem to go back and forth trying to uh, function in a relationship with you based on what we do or we don't do, that that seems to be so much of our default setting. God, I pray that that would go away. Lord, that we would actually believe your promise. Lord, it would change the way we live and we relate, that we would always have the hope that we are right with you because of what Christ has done for us, not based on what we do or don't do. And Lord, I pray that that life-shaping certainty would, would transform our hearts to where we would want to live for you, but not to be accepted by you, but because we already are. So God, we thank you for Christ, and we thank you for his body broken for us, and we thank you for his blood spilled for us. And in light of what he's done, Lord, we want to worship you.
this be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.